Why are Christians so judgmental? Why do they keep telling people how they should live and telling people that what they believe is wrong? Christians go around preaching their morality, but I know that they are not perfect themselves. They're such hypocrites. I wonder, have you heard such comments, such questions? Maybe you've seen the protest signs being held up, usually in America. God hates gays. Repent or else. Adoption, not abortion. Christians, so arrogant, so bigoted. The Christian tells the non-Christian that they're a sinner, that they need to repent and turn to Jesus. It's true. Are they being judgmental? Or does it depend on how you say it? What about Christians pointing out sin in other Christians' lives? Have you experienced other Christians looking down on you, judging you for what you believe, for what you say, for what you do, how you behave? Do we as Christians have any right to show sin in other people's lives? Well, this evening we are looking at this topic of judging both in the context of the church, so Christians with Christians, but then also with non-Christians. As I said, when we started, we're beginning a new series in Matthew 7, and it kind of continues on the series we did in Matthew 6. If you were here before Christmas, we were looking at that chapter under the title of Living Authentic Spiritual Lives, if you remember. And uh, much of that theme carries on, of course, through the Sermon on the Mount. We've entitled this series... Be careful how you build. Mainly thinking of that famous story, the wise and foolish builder, which comes at the very end of the sermon, the end of chapter 7. Uh, we'll get to that in a, in a few weeks. But Jesus kind of sums up the whole sermon with that story and basically saying that there are these two ways to live. You either build your life on Jesus, you follow him, you live like his way, or you build your life on, on yourself or someone else your own way and of course in chapter 6 we saw how the religious leaders were basically building their lives their own kingdoms they were living for for self-glory rather than God's glory well let's pray that as we look through Matthew chapter 7 that we would learn to be careful how we build that we'll watch how it is that we live that we would be living on Jesus Christ so First thing Jesus talks about in this chapter is judging. Verse 1, again, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be used against you. So is it right to label Christians as judgmental, as hypocrites? What does Jesus mean by judging? Does he mean that we, we mustn't point out when people are living in sin? Does he mean that we have no right to tell other people how they should live or what they believe? A pluralistic society would love that kind of definition. We're free to do what we want. There's no higher moral standard. It's each step to their own. I am my own God, as it were. You can't tell me what's right. There is no truth. Is that what he means? Does he mean that we can't judge because God is judge? Only he judges. And of course, the Bible tells us that one day God will. He will judge the world. 
By judging, I think, in this passage, Jesus is talking about not passing that severe criticism, not going around, fault-finding, pointing the finger, not looking down on others in a judgmental way, not thinking that we are better than other people and kind of condemning them for how they live and how they speak. So if Jesus says, do not judge, then he must be speaking to people who are judging. There must be judging going on amongst the people of his day. And, and I guess it doesn't take us much as long to guess who perhaps the people are who are pointing the fingers. Who are they walking around Jerusalem with their placards? Maybe it's the religious leaders. Notice in verse 5, he refers to those judging as hypocrites. And hypocrites is a word used repeatedly in chapter 6, referring to, again, those who do lots of things for their own self-glory. The religious leaders being so self-righteous. You have those that were standing on the street corners, praying so proudly so everyone could see them. You can imagine that they were also thinking, hey, I pray, what about you? Sort of language. Think of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 18, where the Pharisee walks to the temple and he's, thank you God, I'm not like this sinner tax collector here. Judging. And Jesus had little patience for hypocrisy. But I guess we must be careful not to get carried away with us pointing the fingers at the Pharisees and the religious leaders, because we too can so easily get caught up in judging. Do you ever judge? I know for me it's often when I'm driving, like most of my sin happens in the car. <laughs> Other drivers are always wrong, aren't they? He approached the junction too quickly. She didn't indicate. People are so selfish. Why don't you let me out in the busy queue? We hear a Christian use bad words and we are quick to frown and to tut. We hear of our friends who drink too much. Even if we don't say anything, often we think the judgmental thoughts. I wonder whether a lot of our judging happens in our own minds if it doesn't happen by word. We don't go around holding up placards, but maybe we think some of the things. We notice that a family is always late to church. Well, that couple, they never come to the prayer meeting. Well, he didn't put much money in the offering bag this week. And we cast judgmental thoughts that are, that are condemning, that are harsh. But the bigger problem is that we hold other people to a standard that often we don't even keep to ourselves. Do, do, do you see that? Am I never the one who drives too fast along the road? Do I always let people out in front of me in the busy queue? Are we never late for church? Do we never look lustfully at other people? Do we always give our money sacrificially? When Jesus, to explain his point, uses this rather amusing illustration of the wood. Look at verse three. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now, if you've ever had a 
piece of sawdust or anything really small in your eye. It's a real nuisance, isn't it? It hurts. It's painful. It shouldn't be there. And yes, it needs to be removed. But if your friend wants to help take it out, but yet themselves have this plank, <laughs> it's pretty impossible. And Jesus wants us to see the, the exaggeration, the hyperbole here. When he talks about plank, he's talking about big beams used for construction. Tiny piece of sawdust with this big whopping piece of wood. We can't do it because we can't see, but we're probably likely to cause more damage than any good. Yesterday, my wife competed in the Blenheim Triathlon. I have to get that in my sermon some point today. <laughs> and um, in her training, she did a lot of cycling, of course. But one time last week, she went out without her glasses. And along various paths, there's lots of bugs and midges on there. And one got into her eye, and it remained there until she got home. So she asked me to come and help her to try and find whether it was there and to point it out. And that's great. She needs to be removed. But if I had this big whopping bug in my eye, you know, I, I wouldn't be able to see it. It just wouldn't work, would it? And you laugh. And I can imagine that the people in Jesus' crowd laughed too. And that was the, the point. Jesus was showing this such a ridiculous illustration, not to say that the plank of wood represents a person who is substantially more sinful than the one with a speck but that the one who has the plank in their eye hasn't even realized that they too are sinful and maybe sinful in the same way as they are condemning others. There they are trying to put someone else's life in order when they themselves are not right. And their problem is that they don't see it. They point the finger but remember, as kids, we learned when you point the finger, there's always three fingers pointing back at you. I don't know if that's true for you. They have sin. But secondly, I think that when they do that, they don't realize that their own sin, they judge others, but yet their own sin is worthy of judgment. And that of God. In God's eyes, our sin is like the plank. And so if we think we can judge others because of their sin, we better be very brave for doing that because our sin is worthy of God's judgment. And I think that's where Jesus goes next. So the first part of the sentence, verse one, do not judge. Second part, he says, or you too will be judged. Verse two, in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He's speaking of God's judgment. If we judge others, we're inviting God to say, okay, well, let's judge you by at least those same standards and see if you measure up. Do you measure up to your own standards? But of course, God's standard is perfection. We'll never measure up to his standard. We've all sinned and all fallen short of his glory, as Romans tells us. And God is judge. He's the one who hasn't sinned, and he is the only one, really, who can truly judge. So we are, like it says in verse 5, if we judge others then, and we are guilty of sin, then we are hypocrites. But I wonder whether there's another point from this illustration of a plank. 
That is, if we have a plank in our eye, then we're more likely to do more damage than repair. Because we can't see. If we go to remove the speck of sawdust, we're going to hit them square in the face with the plank of wood. And it means it's not just about the fact that we judge, but it's about the attitude, the motives. What are we trying to achieve? I remember uh, last year I was teaching a junior church class, and one of the activities was to do lots of cut and pasting, you know, cut a piece of paper to stick on another piece of paper, like all good Sunday school lessons. And there wasn't enough fridge stick to go around. Children had to share. And of course there was a fridge stick next to one boy and he wasn't using it. And the girl next to him wanted to use the fridge stick. And so she took it. But immediately the boy grabbed the stick off her and said, it's mine. And so me, being annoyed by this, grabbed the glue off him and said, don't snatch. Andy, how can you tell a child not to do something when in the very same breath you do the thing you told him not to do? What was I teaching that child? Who cried. <laughs> Feeling convicted of my sin, I repented. We shook hands. It was good. But maybe you too have felt, felt hurt when someone has judged you. Maybe you felt angry, an angry response that... They've judged you, but not only that, but they've, you know that they too are not innocent. Being judged is hard enough, but when it goes against what people believe and what they do, then you think, hypocrites. The Bible warns people, particularly who do this job, teaching the Bible. So here I am this evening preaching to, to you, and including myself, that we mustn't judge but how long will it be before I, in word or probably more so in thought, begin to judge? If I'm going to teach other people to live a certain way, then I'd better watch out. <coughs> the Bible teaches in the book of James that those who teach will be judged more harshly. And he says, so don't be quick to become a teacher. Do not judge or you will be judged. But, having said that, does it mean that we never judge? Is there ever a situation where we do or can judge? Well, Jesus doesn't say we can never judge. And in fact, he continues on with the illustration of the wood. Have a look down from verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. And then he says, first take the plank of wood out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the plank from your brother's eye. It's right to help someone remove a speck of dust from their eye. Dust is a foreign body, it shouldn't be there, and it needs to be removed. And, and sin is foreign too, that doesn't belong, it should be removed. But it's the way that we help our brothers and sisters in Christ. Firstly, we need to remove the plank from our own eye. We first need to realize that we have sin. To realize that we need to deal with our sin 
Paul tells the Galatians that it's good to help your friend who is in sin and to, to restore them spiritually. But he says, but you must watch out or you too will be tempted. Maybe there are areas of sin that you are very quick to notice in other people's lives. Things that are quite clear to you. And, and sometimes we know it because we know it. We struggle with that too. But sometimes we're quick to point it out when we don't even realise that it's something we struggle with. I'm very quick to, to point the finger when people leave a place in such a mess. When it's not neat and tidy. But I can cast all the judgement in the world. I can think how lazy people are for not cleaning up after themselves. But if you were to see the state of my living room and kitchen when I was typing these words, you would say, hypocrite. If I want to help people be more organized, <laughs> then I had better practice the same principle in my own life. And that's how we can help others. When we see our own sin, when we confess and repent, when we ask God to help us, to change us, then we are better able to help others. Our attitude completely changes, doesn't it? We realize that though we are weak, just like they are, that we <coughs> stumble, just like they do, that life is hard, just like it is for them. And so our relationship with one another is one where there is humility, where there's patience rather than pride, displeasure. And friends, when people open up, when people share their lives, their struggles, their difficulties, it makes all the difference in the world when they know that you are not judging them. Now that doesn't mean that we don't dismiss sin, we don't excuse sin, we don't talk about it. We don't not talk about it. But when we do talk about it, we do it with grace and with patience, with humility and with much prayer. And let's pray that Modern Road Church would be a church where people feel free to come and share life, to be helped, to be vulnerable, to be helped overcome their sin by those who know they are sinful too, rather than feeling left out, feeling inadequate, feeling like they're not good enough. Because none of us are good enough. We are brothers and sisters together, growing in faith and holiness as the Lord Jesus helps us. And it is his help that we need. Think of Jesus, think of his life. Jesus is God, he did not sin. He's the one who can judge because he's sinless. And yet think about when he walked on earth. Who did he judge? Did he judge the sinners and the tax collectors? Did he point the fingers at the, at the prostitutes? Or was it those particular people that he spent the most time with? As he cared for the outcasts and the sinners, he had the finger pointed at him by the religious leaders, didn't he? But they were the ones who were happy to be with Jesus. They were happy to invite him into their house. They were happy to go and break their most expensive perfume all over his feet and wipe his feet.
feet with their hair. They loved him. They knew that they were sinners. They must have talked about sin. Jesus preached the gospel, but he did it in a way that they led them to repent, <laughs> that led them to see that someone loved them, that there was forgiveness. And in Jesus' presence, it led sinners to faith, rather than driving them away to, to bitterness and more sin. And of course, Jesus was the one who then went on to die for their sin and their shame, to take on himself the judgment that they deserve. Jesus dying on the cross, being judged by God, taking all that sin so we and they could be free of their guilt and their shame, to be cleansed of it all. He knows it all. He knows more than we know ourselves. He knows more than other people can see in our lives. People talk about that illustration of if all our sin was to be projected on the screen, we would be so ashamed and would feel all the fingers being pointed at us. But yet with God, that doesn't matter. He loves us so much, he was willing to send his son to bear that judgment for us. So far, Jesus has taught us that we are not to judge in this harsh, condemnatory way, but that in love to bring others to repentance. But what about our speech with unbelievers, with those who aren't Christians? Of course, we mustn't get, again, judged with condemnation, but the gospel that we proclaim is still a message of sin and repentance. We believe in a worldview that teaches truth. It teaches that Jesus is the only way. It's a message that is offensive. So do we not preach sin? Maybe you've experienced this yourself talking with, with non-Christians. Maybe your friends, your family, you talked about what the Bible says, you've done it with, with love and, and care but they just hate, they hate what you say. They don't believe it, they completely reject it. But some go further, they don't only reject it, but they outrightly oppose it. They seek to slam it, to ridicule it, to stamp it out. I think this is where Jesus goes with this last verse, verse six. A rather strange verse, you might think, when you first read it. But let's read it, and then we'll think about what it means for our topic. Jesus then goes on and he says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Dogs, the wild animals, not tame. They're used to living out wildly. They're scavenged for their food, rooting through the rubbish. What is sacred, probably refers to what's in the temple, the consecrated bread, perhaps, or meat that's left over from a sacrifice, stuff that is, that is wholly used for that good, precious, special purpose. Something that would be wasted on these dogs. They don't know what it is, they don't care. They'll eat it, but they probably want more. They'll turn on you and want to eat you. And in a similar way, pigs, Smelly, dirty animals rolling around in the mud. They eat all sorts of stuff, but they don't eat pearls. 
All pearls are good for trampling under their feet, but yet pearls are precious, precious stones. They're worth a lot of money. Don't waste what is good on those who don't acknowledge it, who don't appreciate it. So what does Jesus mean? Who are the dogs? Who are the pigs? Are they unbelievers? Generally? I don't think generally, but I think they are unbelievers who have completely rejected the gospel, who really hate it, but are also who are really out to, to quiet push it back. They're like the religious leaders. They want to get rid of Jesus. They want to kill him. Those who are rightly opposed to the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is that if we keep on getting at them, if we keep on talking about sin, they need to, to be forgiven. If we keep on putting out sin, then people just don't want to believe. They don't want to hear it. And they're persistent. They get angry. They turn on you, perhaps. They accuse you of being judgmental and bigoted. They may even harm you and kill you. Stop telling them the gospel. Those who won't believe, no matter what you say, is Jesus saying we're wasting our time talking to such people? Ironically, dogs and pigs were those words used to describe the Gentiles, the non-Jews. But now Jesus is using those words to describe those who opposed him, the religious leaders. They turned away from him, and so Jesus says, turn away from them. Isn't that what happens in Acts 13? Paul, Barnabas, they're out on their missionary journey. They're in Pisidian Antioch. And Luke tells us on the Sabbath, the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. So the people, they didn't only reject the gospel, but they sought to do it and the people harm. But what happened next? Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas answered boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first, Jews. But since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them, and they went to Iconium. They shook the dust off their feet, just as Jesus told his disciples to do. If people reject your message, then walk away. <clears throat> now, I don't think this is an excuse not to do evangelism. It's not a reason for us to give up after the first effort of trying to talk to someone about Jesus if they don't believe. It is something I think that we should do as a last resort. God loves people. God wants people to come to repentance. And we too want people to believe in Jesus. And to walk away from such opportunities is hard. How do you make that call? How do you know when to give up if you ever do? We know, don't we, that there'll always be people who will respond to the gospel. Until the Lord returns, people will keep becoming Christians. It might take some people a long time. It may take years and years. With us sharing our faith with them, it takes years and years. And one day they come to Christ. But there are others who we meet 
And when we're in dialogue with them, they just simply refuse. They stand resolute. Maybe you have friends, family particularly, can be like this. There's such that close connection with family, and yet they hate what you believe. They don't want to talk about it. Don't discuss it with us. What do you do? Do you keep persisting? Or will persistence just make it harder? Do you stop? Do you go to someone who's more interested? Well, I think we need to pray. We need to pray, at least keep praying for those we know. We need to pray for wisdom of how to respond. We need to be careful because we can, through our persistence, cause more harm than good with the gospel. We can damage the reputation of the gospel sometimes if we keep persisting in a wrong way, which ends up being judgmental. But however it is, however hard it is to hear, there may be occasions where we need to stop wasting our time and go to where there is interest. Jesus cast the seed far and wide. Many rejected, many didn't pick it up, but some did. As we close, the heart of Jesus and our heart too is that in every situation to do with people turning from sin, the outcome we want is for people to turn to Jesus and to love him, to find forgiveness, to have the power of the Spirit in their lives so they can live holy lives. And the Lord has chosen to use us to do that. We're not to brush sin under the carpet, but in love we're to help one another to grow in repentance, to grow in faith. The Lord uses us to proclaim this wonderful gospel of truth, of Jesus being the only way, and and praise God, many will believe. But we need to remember that we proclaim this gospel as people who also have been saved by, from our sin. And so let us be careful. Let us be careful how we build. Be careful how we speak. May we, with great love and humility, come alongside those who are struggling and who are weak and help them. May we proclaim and speak about Jesus in such a way, with such an attitude, that we have such love for other people. A love that sometimes, when it's rejected, can hurt us. But may we pray that many would come to Jesus, the Saviour of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his wonderful, perfect life. Thank you for his love and care and compassion for those that were considered outcasts by everybody else. Thank you that through his love, but also through his words, through sharing the gospel, through sharing the opportunity for repentance and faith, that many of those who were outcasts came to trust in Jesus. And we are some of them too this evening. We know we are sinful. Father, keep showing us our sin that we may grow and repent of it. 
But Father, as Christians, as we seek to live with fellow believers, help us not to judge in such harsh and condemnatory ways. Help us to love others and to help them with such love and compassion and humility that they grow rather than walk away. And Father, as we think about our attitude and our speech with those in the world, please may there be many who hear the gospel and, and turn to Christ. But Father, with those who, who don't, may we keep praying for them. And Lord, give us wisdom, give us wisdom, perhaps when we may need to just stop. And Lord, lead us, lead us to those who will come and bear fruit. For our heart is your heart to see many come to Christ. For your glory. Amen.